0: Well good morning again. Um, let me start off with a question a show of hands. who here knows what coffee soup is? Oh there's some hands, yeah, a couple of them yeah um, I remember my 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 parents having coffee soup when I was little I mean this goes way back. Um, how many's never heard of coffee soup? A couple of hands yeah, a couple a couple of them okay um, it was made with how my parents made it with coffee and saltine crackers, or sometimes coffee and just bread, and they would eat coffee soup. Um, now the fact that some of you know tells me I'm in Somerset County, you know <laughs> that, that you know what coffee soup is some of you do I haven't I haven't I remember tasting it as a boy, and I really didn't care for it much. Now that I like coffee, I, I might enjoy it, I don't know. But I could, I could bet that there would be some churches I could stand in front of on a Sunday morning and ask about coffee soup, and no one would have a clue what I'm talking about. They just never heard of it, don't know anything about it. They said, what is that? We know what soup is, we know what coffee is, but we don't know what coffee soup is. Well, in today's gospel reading from John chapter 1... The religious leaders come out to John. They, we know what water is, we know what immersion is, but what are you doing with baptizing? Is in essence what they're asking. And then they ask him an all-important question. And who are you? I mean, we know what this is going on. We, know, we kind of know what this is, but but who are you? And John's response, he answers the question, as we're going to find out but he kind of turns the tables a little bit in a way. They ask, who are you? And he seems to suggest, well, and do you know who you are? They want to know where he's from, and his response is, well, do you really know where you're from? In in essence, and that's what we're going to talk about today. John sort of turning the tables a little bit on the religious elite who come out to see him. But let's pause first and ask God's blessing. Father God, we do thank you once again for this time to be here. This time of worship, this time of prayer, of singing, this time of joy, Lord, we thank you. Now we pray, Lord, that your presence be experienced here today. Work in us, we ask. Display yourself here, Lord, for us to sense that we might know that we were in the presence of the living God here today during worship. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as I mentioned last week, the Christmas narrative is found mainly in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew, the first two chapters of those two books. That's where we mostly find our Christmas narrative. Mark gives us virtually nothing about Christmas, and John, as I mentioned last week, kind of just gives us, well, it's more spiritualized. It's, it's deep. matter of fact, I, sometimes I call John's gospel the, the thinking man's gospel. Because in some respects, John goes really deep. He says some things that you have to kind of pause. His opening verse tells us as much. You might know John 1.1, For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Instantly you know, wow, we're going somewhere with this. The Word was God, and yet it was with God. How does that work out? And who is the Word? That's just John for you. Now today's gospel is out of John, it's, it's different and it's, it's deeper, I think it really is. Uh, a couple of housekeeping rules here first though, Just to, not rules but just to keep in mind, John the gospel writer is not John the Baptist whom we're going to talk a little bit about today. John the Baptist was another gentleman. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple, as we believe he is, was a disciple of Jesus. Now, he happened at one time also to be a disciple of John the Baptist, but he left his camp to to join Jesus. So it's a different John. So I don't want you to get confused. We're not talking about John the Baptist when we're referring to the writer of this Gospel reading. And I'm not referring to the Apostle John when I'm referring to John the Baptist. I, I know that might sound confusing, but two different Johns here. Now, John the writer tells us about John the Baptist a little bit. And this third Sunday at Advent, as we're turning our hearts and our minds towards this Christmas season and to the first Advent of Christ, I believe it's good to talk about how John introduces the whole idea of Jesus and through the preaching of John the Baptist. Now, also, as I pointed out last week, John the Baptist, I think, was a, not just an interesting preacher... He was very good, I think. And the reason why I say that is because, remember, he was preaching out in the wilderness. He was out out in the desert places. So to hear John the Baptist preach in his day, you had to go out of your way. You had to travel. This was not just walking down to the nearest synagogue to hear a man speak. This wasn't just going around the corner. This was packing a lunch or something and walking out into the woods. Well, maybe not woods, but into the wilderness to find this man preaching. So it was a bit of a challenge. Now today, some, some people will go out of their way to go to certain churches. Some of you may have actually driven a distance to get here today. It's not completely unusual, but it, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge. I mean, who's going to go out of their way to hear this guy back in the wilderness preach? So I, I think he was a good preacher. But more than that, John's message was a challenging message. John, to, to, to give his message one word would be, repent. And that's a challenging word. Now, my full-time job was I worked for Cincinnati Insurance, and about two or three times a year, I drive to the city of Cincinnati. And as I'm driving down I-71 from Columbus to Cincinnati, there's this big billboard, huge billboard along the, uh, the roadside, and it says, Hell is for Real, black and red and white colors. And I've got to be honest with you, it's not a real warm and fuzzy billboard. It doesn't kind of just make you feel... You know, just kind of snug in your car as you're driving down. It's meant to grab your attention, obviously. And that's kind of like the word repent. It doesn't make us feel really comfortable when we hear that. It's kind of a rough word. And yet, that's what John the Baptist's message was. He was teaching people, repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your wicked ways and turn your attention to God. No one really likes to hear those kinds of words. And yet, John, or excuse me, Mark tells us and Luke tells us that all of Judea, all of Jerusalem were coming out to be baptized. He was popular in spite of the distance they had to travel, in spite of the coarseness of his message that came out to listen to him. That tells me, I believe, that the Spirit of God was working heavily in this man's messages and his life. They could endure that hard message because they were attracted to God. There was something about it that drew them in even though that it was difficult to hear. So John's out in the wilderness telling people to repent. They're getting baptized and causing, I believe, quite a stir. So much a stir that word of this had to have reached the epicenter of of Judaism, Jerusalem. Now if you're If you're a well-learned person and and, and you're studying the Torah, you're studying the the, the law of God, and and you're really devoted to it, you're going to live probably in Jerusalem. That's where Judaism's think tank existed, in the city of Jerusalem. That's where who's who among the, the Jewish elite would have been in Jerusalem. So word reaches Jerusalem that this crazy guy is out in the wilderness preaching and he's baptizing. And so we read here in John that the Jewish elite, they get a delegation together, and they send them off. Go out and find out what he's doing. Find out more information about this. we got to know what this guy is saying, what he's doing. So this delegation goes out, probably follows the crowd back into the wilderness, walks back, and the scene is just, it's got to be amazing just to walk back and see this man preaching to the crowd's Out in the desert places. Now how this conversation that John recorded takes place, I I don't know. John doesn't give us any information. But they have a conversation. This, This delegation of Jews who came out to talk to John has a conversation with him. Now whether this occurred shouting across the Jordan River or maybe they sat down with him. Maybe John invited him into his tent for some wild locusts or honey i mean i don't i don't know maybe they sat down and and john just invited them in to talk to them we don't we don't know we don't know how this took place but they asked him a question and they said who are you who are you now john's reply gets right to the heart of the matter because the first thing that john the writer tells us that john the baptist said was I'm not the Christ. And I believe with that answer, he answered exactly what they were thinking. They didn't ask him, but he tells them, I'm not the Christ. By the way, the word Christ is the Greek, or is the English word for the Greek word for Messiah. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word would have been Messiah, and in the, in the Greek, the New Testament, it would be Christ. They mean the same thing. Christ means Messiah. So, his answer is, Well, I'm not the Christ. I would imagine perhaps a bit of a a sigh of relief from those from Jerusalem at that point. And the reason why is because he wouldn't have been the first time, the first person to claim he was the Christ. A Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, who comes about a bit later, records that during this era, there were many Christs who arose. Many of them claimed to be the Messiah. And led some revolts and did some things and were put down and and so it was actually becoming rather common and so when this John the Baptist tells them, well I'm not the Messiah, I would imagine they felt okay good or really a little relieved at that. Uh, now, interesting, I think that there was a heightened awareness during this first century, an expectation for the Messiah for the Christ. Two reasons for that. One is in Daniel chapter 9, there's a prophecy given by Daniel during the Babylonian exile. It's often called the 70 weeks prophecy. And Daniel prophesied, and it's very detailed, I'm just going to kind of give you the summary of it. Daniel prophesied that when one of the decrees issued for Israel to go back from captivity to their land, that the clock begins to tick. And 483 years would go by And then the Messiah would appear. So I think that those who knew something about prophecy in those days, those who knew something about the scriptures would have known, hey, he's going to come soon. According to Daniel, our prophet, there was a prediction made that the Messiah would come. And if we look at the time charts, it's going to happen about now. Another prophecy given in Genesis chapter 49 is that the scepter would not leave um, Judah until the Messiah came. Again, that's just sort of a rough overview of that prophecy. And the scepter had kind of left Judah. Herod was now the king. And so they recognized that as being another sign. He must be here. He, He must be around here or about to be revealed. So there was a really heightened awareness, a heightened expectation that the Messiah was going to come on the scene any moment. So when they hear this crazy guy out in the woods preaching, they go out to ask him, and he says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. And then they ask him, well then, are you Elijah? Now you have to have a little working knowledge of the Old Testament to understand what's behind that question. The last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. The prophet Malachi, Malachi predicted, prophesied, that before the Messiah, Elijah would return. And so they knew that there would be this Elijah coming back before the Messiah. And so they asked him, well then are you Elijah? Now, I've got to unpack this just a minute because this can be confusing if you know your New Testament. He says, no, I'm not Elijah. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah. He said, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah. So Jesus identifies John as Elijah, but John says, no, I'm not Elijah. How do we understand that? Well, just to give you the short version of it, I think that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were looking for the literal Elijah to come back. Elijah the Tishbite, the the man who had been this prophet, for him literally to come back. And John's like, no, I'm John the Baptist. I'm not Elijah. He answered their question. Are you the Elijah, this guy from the Old Testament? No, I'm not him. I'm John the Baptist. But he had come in the spirit of Elijah, something that they weren't quite ready to receive. And then finally they asked him, well, then are you the prophet? I don't know if you saw the definite article there in the reading of the scriptures today. Are you the prophet? not a prophet. They didn't ask, "Are you a prophet?" If he, they would have, he probably said, "Well yes, I'm a prophet, because he knew that he was, but they said, "Are you the prophet?" Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses this time prophesies that God would raise up another prophet like a Mos- like a Moses, that they should listen to. And so they were expecting this prophet, whoever he was. Incidentally, the New Testament writers gives us a glimpse of that, and it's Jesus. Uh, Peter says that in Acts chapter 3, and uh, Stephen says that, I think, in Acts chapter 7, that this prophet is Jesus. But they don't know that. So they ask him, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, then who are you, they said. Who, who are you? And, and why are you all baptizing? We don't get this baptizing thing. What are you doing with that? And of course, John's message was, I baptize for repentance. I think they probably understood the symbolism of it, taking them down in the water, washing them, and they arise, and they confess their sins, and they walk with God. They probably got that. But they didn't get who he was. Who are you, they said. I think what's, what they're saying is, by what authority are you doing these things? I mean, who gave you the authority to do what you're doing now here? And John's response is, Well, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he quotes from Isaiah I'm just this voice that God said was going to cry out in the wilderness. Come on, guys, you should know that one, he seems to suggest to them. That's who I am. And they said, Well, then why are you baptizing? And John says, Well, I'm baptizing with water. And then he says something really interesting but there's one standing among you whom you do not know, and I'm not worthy to even unbuckle his, the, the lashes on his sandal, and he is coming. Now, it's interesting. He said there's one standing among you. Now, I don't know if what he's implied is he's looking past the shoulders of these religious elite, and there stands Jesus in the background. He does appear the, the next day to be baptized by John, or whether he just means He's already present. But what he says is, you don't know him. You're trying to find out who I am, and I'm telling you, you don't know who he is. Now, I I think he was talking more, this is the, the deepness of John that I referred to. This is John kind of writing with a double meaning sometimes. John did that a lot. There's something deeper to John. Yeah, you don't know who he is. He hasn't been revealed yet, but you also don't know him. You don't know him. And I think John implies more to it than just simply you don't know his name. You're not familiar with him. This would be something that Jesus picks up over and over and over in his ministry as he deals with the religious elite in his day. They didn't know him. It comes to a head, and so to speak, in John chapter 8 where he's discussing with the Pharisees who they are, really. And he said, I know you're children of Abraham, but you're not children of Abraham. And I'm, they don't even know how to make that calculate. What, what do you mean? We're, we're Abraham's children. And he said, yeah, I know your children. I know your descendants of him, but Abraham believed and you don't. Therefore, you're not real children of Abraham. And then he goes on to say, actually, you are sons of your father, the devil. That's kind of tough words. But I think what Jesus is saying is, you're you're, you're not of me, you're not from me. You, you, You don't know me. And I could imagine that those words just are incalculable in their minds. It doesn't even compute what do you mean we're not children of Abraham? I mean, what, what are you trying to say to us, Jesus? Because this is this is Jewish elite here. These are the men who have studied, who know the Torah, who could quote to you not just chapters, but entire books of it. These are the men who had given their lives to studying and knowing God. And here this man in front of them says, but you don't know him. You don't know him. And I don't think they really were able to handle that. What do you say? What do you mean we don't know God? You know, as you know, I, I've shared many times I go to the to the jail to hold Bible studies, and sometimes I think in environments like that, and also at the drug rehab place where I hold Bible studies, that the, the lines aren't quite as blurred as sometimes I feel that they are in churches. And let me, let me explain a little bit. It, when, when I get to a Bible study in the jail, I have people who have robbed houses, who have stolen money from from. Uh, relatives from their own family members. I have people who have done a lot of bad things. And when one of them, well, when, when the, f- the, the switch gets flipped in their lives and suddenly they become followers of Jesus Christ, there's a, there's a real change, it seems. Because those things that they used to do, they no longer walk in them. And in that sense, the line isn't, it seems, as blurred to me, to me, in their lives. But in churches, well, I'm just going to take it for granted, there probably are, are very few thieves in here. I mean, you don't make your business robbing people. That's not, that's not how you get by. That's not the things you do. You're generally good people. And therefore, when, some, when a good person gets turned on to God, when a good person begins to follow him, who begins to know God, well, they continue in their goodness, and it's kind of hard for me to see that change. Because you go from being good to being good who loves God, if that makes any sense to you at all. But you know, but but because of that goodness that a lot of us share, we can even get confused. Because we can start putting a reliance on our goodness, I suppose. I come to church. Every Sunday I come to church. I put money in the offering plate. I take a copy of the bulletin. I, I, I may, I even belong on a committee. I, I serve this church in some capacity. And all of those things are good, and I wouldn't discourage you from any of those things. But those things by themselves don't necessarily mean that you know God. A person who doesn't know God could do all of those things and still be no closer to Him than when they've started. Knowing God is not just doing good things, it certainly involves it, but it's not that alone, if you will. You know, Martin Luther, the, the father of the modern Protestant Revolution, I mean the, the, uh, the Reformation I should say, he was a, an Augustinian monk and he was trying to know God, trying to find him. And he did a lot of things to try to, 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 try to find God. And one of the problems is he, he felt like he was trapped in an institution that didn't know God either. And, and he had to break out of that to finally really understand who, who God was. And we can. We, become, we can become part of an institution that itself maybe have drifted in, and we ourselves could drift with it. That's exactly, I believe, what happened to the religious elite in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, 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 um, all of the, uh, the Levites and the priests. Not all of them necessarily, but these groups, they were so busy about the service of God that it seems they didn't know him. Jesus said, there's one standing in your midst and you don't know him. Wouldn't it be sad for us if here we are in, in a church, a uh, part of a church family, said of us similar, that, that I, here I come to church, here I'm, I'm, I'm serving the church, I'm doing these good things, and some of them might say to me, but do you know him? But that's sort of the question that John seems to be asking here. They come asking, who are you? And in a sense, I think he's challenging them, but do you know who he is? there's some really difficult words in Matthew chapter 7, around verse 21. Jesus said, and he's just winding up his famous Sermon on the Mount. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then he goes on, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, uh, cast out demons in your name, perform many wonders in your name? In other words, he's suggesting there's this coming a time when he is going to face a certain group of people, and they're going to say, "Lord, we used your name, we did great things for you. We've, we've went on mission trips perhaps. We, we did wonderful things for you." And he's going to declare, Jesus said, "I will declare to them, I never knew you. I, I didn't know you." Yeah, you went about these things doing these good things, but you and I never connected. We we never connected. You, You never submitted yourself to me, nor did you ever surrender yourself to me. We just didn't know each other. It would be an awful thing if this church went around being this church with people in it who don't know him. And that's my challenge today is to challenge you. Do you know him? I hope and pray that you do. But, but it's not a problem to stop and at least think about. To meditate on that yourself for a moment. Do I know God? Oh, yes, I do these things, and maybe I, I, I'm, a, I'm an active member of this church. But that's not what John's question is. John's challenge, I believe, for us is, but do you know God? Do you have a heart that's turned toward him? Are you seeking him out? And if the answer to that is no, then I don't care how long the list of things that you do well and right and good are, because I don't believe they're going to matter to God. Knowing God is your greatest purpose in life. Knowing who he is and his relationship to you is the greatest calling that will be, ever be put on anyone else in this whole world, to know God. And I pray that you devote yourselves to that quest, to somehow, whatever it takes, to go find God and to know him, to walk with him. Everything else pales in comparison to that one challenge. And I want to challenge you. I want to earnestly beg you to seek him and to know your God, to walk with him. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we pray for your presence, Lord. And we do want to know you. We don't don't want to escape this, this life without ever having to explore you, God. Oh, give us the courage, the wisdom. Give us the conviction, Lord, whatever it takes, that we as a people might turn our hearts towards you and our focus and our attention on you, oh God, and to find you. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.